Thank you for listening to the Abundant Life Sermon Podcast. Abundant Life is based out of Lee Summit, Missouri and has campuses throughout the Kansas City metro area and online. We want to see your life changed by Jesus. For more information about Abundant Life or for locations and service times, visit livingproof.co. Thanks for listening. Pardon me. I'm building the throne, my throne. It's the throne of my home. And only one person can sit on this throne. I have fought for this throne. I have defended this throne. It is my throne. I am king of my castle. If you don't believe me, I got the robe to prove it. So pardon me if I crown myself king. Got my scepter. You may think it's funny, but I'm serious. I'm the king. Every castle has a king and every castle has a queen. The problem is every castle has only one throne and it'll either be the king or the queen that sits on that throne and I'm on the throne. Yeah, my wife wanted this throne. I had to defend this throne. But it's good being up here alone. It's lonelier than I thought it would be, but I'm on the throne. I feel like maybe I won the battle, but I've lost the war. I feel like I'm all alone. (laughs) Well, the truth is I had to injure my wife to get this throne. I wounded her more than once to sit on this throne. And the truth is, to sit on this throne, it will leave you all alone in your own home. And today, as we continue the series, I want to encourage you to take off the crown and get off the throne. And what I will promise you is you will never be happier when it's Jesus alone that sits on the throne of your home. And this is what I want you to see today, church. In marriage, there is no struggle for control of the throne when Jesus alone sits on the throne of your home. And traditionally what happens in every home, as we've said, every castle is a home, and every home is somebody's castle, and every single time in a castle you have a king and a queen, and historically, within our homes, there's this competition, this constant tension for control of who sits on that throne. It's about control. It's about fighting for one's opinion, who's going to set the direction. And I want you to see today that you were never, ever meant to have the battles on the inside. That every single castle has walls to keep the battles on the outside. And it was a bad day for that castle when that castle no longer had a battle on the outside, but that battle had now made it to the inside. Because Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
And that is why it's important we go back to Psalm 127 and verse one. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Now I want you to open your Bible to Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna be studying Ephesians chapter five. And I promise eventually before we end this series, we're gonna study all of Psalm 127 and all of Psalm 128 for this ancient wisdom and how we can have a family and a marriage and a home that last forever. Remember, castles had walls for protection, and those walls were a place of fortification. Be understand, every single castle was in fact a small city, and in the ancient days, every city had walls around that city, and it was to protect the inhabitants of that city from an adversary, an army. And every single castle, like every single ancient city, had watchmen on the walls of that city. I want you to see what it says. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. You understand there is an adversary that wants to destroy your family. Jesus said he's a thief, Satan who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And every single day, you have an adversary on the outside of those walls that's looking for a little crack in the wall, just a little crease in the wall, that he can slither through that wall to get inside those walls. And consequently, what happens is the same play he's run over and over again is to create this competition, this tension between a husband and a wife, and it's all about control. Who will control that home? Who will sit on that throne. And it's important we understand that while I am the king of my castle and Krista is the queen of her castle, we both serve a high king, the king of heaven, King Jesus, and neither of us are on the throne of our home. That's what ended the competition. No more tension because Jesus has complete dominion. And that is the key to having a marriage that only gets happier as the years go by. Now, I'm gonna say some things today that's gonna be countercultural because we've learned that we're building homes with a different set of specs. We're learning what is God's blueprint versus the world's blueprint. And so I'm gonna say some things that frankly are in opposition to modern American culture, which is why I'm gonna solicit a commitment from you today. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Would you commit today to saying the Lord is my builder? Yes? Here's the reality. You're gonna be tested. Because there's the Lord's way to build a home and there's the world's way to build a home. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. But we have learned you can build a castle that will still be there centuries from now. Or you can build a sand castle that won't be through the end of the week. And Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, your life, your home, your family will either be built on the rock with a firm foundation or you're going to build it on the sand. And it's a sand castle story that will erode with time, fade away, and one day it will absolutely decay. So I'm going to say something that is first and foremost oppositional. The world will not agree. Your neighbors probably will not agree. Your coworkers will not agree. But I'm going to show you God's blueprint for a happy marriage and a happy family, all right? Very, very controversial. Here it is. In marriage, men and women are equal. One male voice. I've tried to teach you, gentlemen, if you hesitate, it's too late, all right? <laughs> Let's try this again. In marriage, men and women are equal, but we are not the Yes, we differ in function. Now, this is really important because we live in this age of equality. 
And what the society has done is confuse equalness with sameness. And so what we're saying is men and women are equal, which makes men and women the same, but what I want you to see is God made us similar, but we are not the same. Yes, men and women are equal, but we differ in function, and we're not the same. And I'm convinced the reason so many marriages are on the rocks is because we haven't built our marriage on the rock, and I'm going to say something else today. I'm going to add to that statement today. There are so many marriages on the rocks because in marriages, we have rocked the rolls. And if you don't want to have a marriage on the rocks, you've got to quit rocking the rolls. Now, here's the reality. We live in a society that says, oh no, there are no rolls. But I want you to see the roles of husbands and wives are God-given. These are timeless. They're God-given roles of men and women. And while we are equal, we are not the same. We differ in function. We have a different position. And we need to play the position or we're going to rock the roles, which always leads to marriage on the rocks. Now, don't be confused with roles and responsibilities. Responsibilities change from one marriage to the next, maybe from one generation to the next, even within your marriage. If you stay married long enough, your responsibilities will change within your own marriage. The roles stay the same, but responsibilities can change. For example, in my home, we had an unwritten, um, unspoken kind of understanding. One of my responsibilities would be to mow the grass. I've never one time asked my wife to go mow the grass. Uh, And she's never one time asked me to go mow the grass. It was just kind of an unspoken, unwritten responsibility that in my marriage, I would mow the grass. Now, that doesn't mean, ladies, in your marriage, in your home, if you want to mow the grass, that doesn't make you sinful, doesn't mean you're unbiblical. In fact, there are probably lots of husbands here that would say, that's a great idea. (laughs) Honey, baby, you want to go mow? Have at it. It's all yours. Now, I want, that's just a responsibility. It doesn't make my home right and your home wrong. It's just a responsibility. It's interchangeable. It can change. And in the very same way, in the early days of my marriage, I took care of the outside of the house, and my wife largely took care of the inside of the house. But just like today, ladies, I'm sure it would be perfectly okay if more and more husbands decided I can do some laundry and mop the floors. And all the ladies say... Yes, got your back, ladies, got your back. Real men do the laundry, I'm just saying, okay. See, these are responsibilities, these are interchangeable, but what's not is the roles that God has given men and women in marriage. And we're gonna see that these are fixed because they're God-given. For best results, let's consult the manufacturer. The world is building marriage one way with a different set of specs. God is the author and maker, the creator of marriage. He is the originator of marriage. So as I've said before, for best results, we're gonna consult the manufacturer. And when you look in marriage, biblically, you have the man who has a role, he's a picture of Christ, and the woman has a role, she's a picture of the church. See, everything that God wants to teach us about what we can't see, he gives us a picture physically of something we can see. And the husband-wife relationship physically is to be a picture spiritually of the relationship between another bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, and his bride. That's the church, the body and bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's you and I. And so we're going to see that we are one flesh. We're to be one person, one body. The moment the two of you said, I do, he no longer sees two of you. He now sees only one of you. And the role that God's given men and women is very clear in Ephesians chapter 5. The man is the head and the wife is the body. 
Now, what does it even mean? We're going to put some handles on that here very, very shortly. But this I know, having been to a chiropractor now for many, many years, when my body and my head are not aligned, it causes all kinds of problems. You know why some of you have problems in your marriage? Because the body and the head are not aligned. What I know is I need to make sure for my health, my body and head are perfectly aligned, which is why I go to a chiropractor on the regular. so good. I always feel so much better. Now here's the reality. It doesn't last forever. That's why you got to go. It's not one and done. You got to go again and again. Here's the simple reality. Physically, if your body is not aligned with your head, it will cause all kinds of pain in your body. And in marriage, if your body is not aligned with your head, it'll cause all kinds of pain in your marriage. And so consequently, God is very, very clear. The goal for God in your marriage is that you know the joy of true intimacy, the joy of being true unity and intimacy with another human being. And that's where we left off with our newlywed couple a week ago. In Genesis chapter 2, God said, you are now one flesh, one with another. And this is ultimately what God sees in marriage. God sees the husband-wife relationship as one flesh with the husband as a head and the bride being the body. And we looked last time at the end of Genesis chapter 2, and you have this newlywed couple, and they are in complete intimacy. I mean, Genesis 2.25, they were naked and not ashamed. All is well in paradise. I mean, Eve is married to an awesome husband, the perfect man. And you have Adam that's married to an awesome wife, the perfect wife, Naked wife. That's what it said. Read it for yourself. Okay, it's in the Bible. But they just weren't naked physically. They were naked in every other way too. Naked emotionally, mentally, spiritually. What is intimacy? Into me see. They were naked and not ashamed. That's God's desire for your life. But what happened when they sinned? All was no longer well in paradise. Genesis 3, you know the story. They began hiding from God, hiding from each other. The cover-up began. They sewed fig leaves together to hide those places that they felt shame and blame, anxiety, insecurity, and Consequently, that DNA has been embedded on every single couple since as the fallen sons of Adam and the fallen daughters of Eve. What happens in Genesis 3? God came looking for them. Said, Adam, what have you done? Guess what Adam did? He blamed his wife, spoken like a real man. It's the woman's fault. And then Eve blamed the devil. The devil made me do it. And every single couple senses played the blame game. And that is where the struggle for control of the home began. The battle of the sexes is because of sin. Sin has brought a distortion and competition to every single family sense. And we can see this in Genesis 3. What's happening now in Genesis 3? God is pronouncing judgment and the curse of sin upon all of creation. He turns to the man, then he turns to the woman. 
And look at what he says to the woman, Genesis 3.16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Did you know that before there was sin, ladies, childbearing was not going to be painful? It was going to be easy. And what God is saying is that because of sin, now part of the reason the, the childbearing is, is so hard and it's, uh, it's so painful is because of the curse of sin. Uh, and, and I'm just saying, ladies, you need to know that ahead of time. Because, you know, when I get to heaven, after I see Jesus, I'm going to be in awe of him. I'm going to worship him. I'm going to look for Adam. I got some words for Adam. Yeah, we're going to have some words. And then, and then I want you to look for Eve, all right? Yeah, you got some words for Eve, too. Because every single time you have a baby, and it's really, really hard, it's Eve's fault. It's part of the curse of sin. By the way, ladies, I, I, I deeply admire you. I just don't fully understand all of you, really. This modern trend toward natural childbirth, like I admire you, but I don't get you. Yeah, give me the pain, I want the pain. Okay, your call, your business. I'm just saying if it's me, I'm taking the spinal tap all day. Give me the medicine. And guys, I'm telling you, I was in the birthing center with two of my three children. I will tell you right now, if you are in the birthing center, when your wife delivers your baby, you will walk away with a brand new respect for your wife. Because what is clear to me, there's no doubt in my mind, is that women are clearly tougher than men. Clearly tougher than men. They got the hardest part of the equation here. They do. No doubt about it. You don't believe that? Go home today. Try taking a bowling ball and shoving it through your belly button. And don't stop till you succeed. You'll know then that women are tougher than men. It's part of the curse of sin. Now, God's not done. Something else has changed. Just because, you know, labor is now going to cause pain, something else has changed, even worse. says this, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. This is where the battle of the sexes began. Before this newlywed couple, they were not at war. They were not looking to control a throne. They, they were in unity. They were in harmony, naked and not ashamed. The battle of the sexes began because of sin. Your desire will be for your husband. Now, I have sought many commentaries, looked at a lot of the scholars, the theologians, what they think this phrase means. Now, it's a little bit ambiguous going from an ancient language like Hebrew into our modern vernacular. And the more I look at it, the more I am convinced what you don't see in the English is what it's really implying, Eve, your desire will be for your husband's position, as in the head. And then look at what it says, and he will rule over you. Now, this is the curse of sin. Now, a lot of people have said, well, you know, maybe your desire will be for your husband. This is what a lot of the commentaries say. Well, now she's going to desire her husband sexually. To which I say, now th that is silly. That does not sound like a curse. That sounds like more of a blessing. <laughs> no, I don't think that's what's going on. The curse is all of a sudden you now have competition. You now have this, this tension. And it's about control for a throne. Now all of a sudden, she wants that throne. No, he doesn't belong on that throne. There's only one king that can sit on that throne, but she doesn't belong on that throne either. And historically, what happens, it says, and he shall rule over you. Do you understand that men were never meant to rule women? Men were never meant to dominate women. 
Yet you have this historic male chauvinism, the historic male sexism, the historic male domination of male-female relationships where you have the man sitting on the throne of the home, you have him sitting in this place of dominion, and historically, that was what human civilization and how it was fashioned, but now you have this new modern feminism. And listen very carefully, don't think for a moment this new modern feminism is only the Susan B. Anthony kind of feminism. Go back 100 years ago. You have Susan B. Anthony that was leading women's suffrage. I think it should have been happened a lot sooner than 100 years ago. Women should have been given a right to vote. And all the men said, yes. Hey, we can all agree that women should make equal wages for equal work. Yes? Now we're getting it together. Yes. Yes, no question about it. There's reasons why the feminist movement was born because of the historic male domination of women. But listen very carefully. What has happened in the feminist movement of the last 100 years, it has morphed. It is no longer merely about equal wages for working women. It's now not simply about equality. It now is about power. See, that's the new modern social justice movement. It's not really about equality. It's increasingly about power, where there's this constant tension now, this constant competition for who's going to sit on the throne and who's going to be in control of that home. And honestly, where historically it was men sitting on the throne, ruling over women, a complete distortion. It was a complete deception of sin. Now, in many cases, it's the woman sitting on the throne of the home. And I want you to see these extremes of the historic male chauvinism or this new modern feminism that seeks to usurp the role of man and erase the role of men. They are both equally from the pit of hell. They were the play of the enemy to divide a family instead of a family walking in joy and intimacy and unity as one body, as one person, as one flesh. Now listen carefully. I want you to see how we end the war zone of the home. When a husband and wife are in submission to God, they will naturally be in submission one to another. See, when the two of you raise the white flag and surrender to him and submit to him and let Jesus sit on the throne of your home, you all of a sudden get off the judgment seat and you can go back to the love seat. And the love seat is where you really want to be. The love seat is the real reason you got married. But you can't sit on the love seat if you're sitting in the judgment seat. Let Jesus sit in the judgment seat. The two of you get on the love seat. And as you submit to Jesus and his dominion, it ends the competition. There's no more tension. And so here's the key to every human relationship. If you're not married, maybe you're single. One day you might be married. You need to listen carefully. I'm giving you the framework of a happy marriage that will be until death do you part. But even if you're not married, I'm going to give you the key to every single human relationship to have healthy, happy, lasting relationships. It begins in Ephesians 5.21. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. Learning to live mutually in submission. As you are submitted to God, you naturally live in submission one to another. Now, the Apostle Paul is about to give us what I'm convinced is the greatest dissertation ever on marriage. Ephesians chapter 5, by far and away. 
the greatest dissertation ever on marriage, theologically and practically. I mean, this is the age where you can listen to books and you can listen to uh, seminars and podcasts and you can go to a marriage conference and marriage retreat, more information than ever on, you know, five love language and, you know, men are from Mars, women are from Venus and all this stuff, right? But I'm trying to tell you, nothing compares to what we're about to see in Ephesians 5. And he begins with this verse right here, submitting to one another in the fear of God. When a man and a woman are in submission to God, they will naturally be in submission one to another. What is the fear of God? The fear of God. This is a phrase you see throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament. The fear of the Lord. We're living in the fear of God. That doesn't mean you're scared of God. What it means, though, is you have put God in his rightful place. You put Jesus on the throne, you've given Jesus complete dominion, and you're living in submission. That's what it means to live in the fear of the Lord or the fear of God. You have raised the white flag of surrender, and you have said, Jesus, you have a right to rule my life, and your rule in my life is always right. You are submitted to the sovereign authority of the living God. And the reality is when you have the wrong king on the throne, when you're on the throne, you will never have a life of peace and prosperity. It will be constant warfare and work. It is anarchy when you're not submitted to God's authority. And that is why the average American family is in a state of anarchy, because they're not surrendered to God's authority. That's what it means now to live in the fear of God. Now listen, when you live in the fear of God as a couple, you will naturally live in submission one to another. We're about to see how this works. The man is the head, the wife is the body, and you're living in complete unity. And this is God's desire. The wife then submits to her head's lead, and the husband then submits to his body's need. His lead, her need. This is how a couple in marriage mutually submits one to another in the fear of the Lord. They are mutually submitted to each other because first they have submitted to God altogether, and now she submitted to her lead the head, her husband, and he submitted to his body and her knees. Think about this. You're one person marriage. You're one flesh is what God has said. Because remember, this is a picture of another marriage. Jesus being the bridegroom, the head of the church, and you and I, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. So picture this. He wants you to be one flesh. The moment you said, I do, he said, I no longer see the two of you. I now see only one of you. Is my body and my head in competition at this moment? Which is more important to my health as a person, my body or my head? Which one could I live without? See, they're in complete unity. They're in complete harmony, one with another. I mean, if my body was separated from my head or my head was separated from my body, it would be a bad day for Pastor Phil, yes? See, it's not about, well, he's more important or she's more important or he's superior and she's inferior and all this stuff you hear historically, you know, girls rule, boys drool. No, the truth is both of them are essential parts of the equation. They are equal in importance. Men and women are equal, but we're not the same. We have different functions within marriage. And as one person, he's the head as a picture of Christ, and she's the body as a picture of the church. And while she is submitting to his lead, he's submitting to her need. I mean, think about this for a moment. It's my head that sets the direction. If my head says go this way, my feet go this way. 
If my head says go this way, my feet go this way. My feet don't set the direction. My head sets the direction. If my head says go this way, my feet go this way. Check this out though. Not one time does the head think about what is best for itself. You see, while my body submits to the lead of the head, my head is always submitting to the need of my body, to nourish my body. If my body says I'm cold, my head says I need to go get a blanket. If my body says I'm hungry, my head says I need to get some ice cream. <laughs> Amen? See, my head doesn't think about what is best for itself. My head is always thinking about submitting to the needs of the body, taking care of the nourishment of the body, protecting the body. You see, this is what God has desired for you. In the same way, we submit to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the church being the body and bride of Christ. We follow his lead. In the very same way, Jesus, who is the head of the church, came for this reason to submit to our need. What was our need? to be redeemed from our sin. So he submitted himself to be crucified and nailed to a cross where he bore our sin and our shame and our blame. And he gave his life on Calvary as sin's penalty. Why? Because he was submitting to our need. And you can start to see how this is meant to work in marriage. There's no competition. Both of them are essential parts of the equation, Ephesians 5.22. Now, Paul puts handles on this for us. How do we mutually submit in marriage? And what we have in verse 22 is by far and away the favorite verse of every man in the Bible. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And all the married men said, that was a setup, I am sorry. That was not fair, should not have gone there. Now what's Paul, he's putting handles on this for us. Stay with me ladies, because it's not what you think it is. You've been told it's one thing, it's another thing altogether. The reason why this idea of submission for so many people is like running your fingernails down a chalkboard is because it has been misappropriated, misapplied, misused, and abused historically even in the church. Submission is a good thing. It's not to oppress, but rather to protect. And all of us never graduate or get a promotion that we no longer have to live in submission, both the man and the woman. So look at what it says. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the, here it is, head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. Because he is a picture of Jesus, the head. He says, now wives, I want you to submit to your husband the way you submit to Jesus. Is that because you have to or because you want to? See, we follow Jesus and submit to his lead, not because we've got to, not because we're made to, not because we have to, but we do it willingly because we want to. That's he's saying, as unto the Lord. In the same way, you submit to Jesus. I want you to submit now to your husband. Now listen very carefully. This verse has been misused and misapplied for generations. This does not mean that you have to stay in an abusive marriage. That is not the implication. 
Because I've heard men try to use this verse and bully their wives with it, hiding behind the Bible. And when you weaponize the Bible to get what you want, to sit on your throne, you are not even a Christian, much less even a man. So don't use the Bible as a weapon to bully and manipulate women. Ladies, this does not mean you have to stay in a marriage with a repeater cheater or with an abuser or be a doormat. I'm trying to make this very, very clear because this is how this verse has been used before. And I've seen men try to use it to manipulate their wives and hold them hostage. No, what Paul is doing here is he is assuming that you're married to a godly man, not an ungodly man. He's assuming you're not married to a man that will lead you in ungodly ways. See, if you're married to an ungodly man trying to lead you in sinful things, you are not to submit in all things. Acts 5.27, we ought to obey God rather than men. But what he is saying, if you're married to a godly man, not a perfect man, but you know he's trying to be godly, he's trying to follow Jesus, what he's saying is, because you want to, not because you have to, I want you to submit to him and follow him, even if you have maybe a slightly different opinion. That's what he's trying to say. And there's two extremes historically that has governed male-female relationships. You have this extreme over here historically. The man is the head of the home. I am king of my castle, and I have my scepter, and I have my throne, and I have got my crown, and I'm the king of the home. And I'm trying to say, gentlemen, the moment you got to pull out your man badge, you're not leading anything. And historically, this is what has been the case. Because I'm the head of the home, it's my way, I'm in charge of this home, and the wife has to submit to me, and she has to follow me, and I want you to understand that when you decide you're going to lead your home in such a manner, it's going to be a lonely place to be on that throne. And that is not how Jesus leads us. Jesus does not make us follow him. No, he doesn't have a two-by-four in heaven ready to whack us on the head and threaten us into following him. We do this as free will agents. So you have historically what amounts to male chauvinism and male domination, but now you have the penalty that swung clear over here now that says, you know, for all the women here, oh, no, 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 you don't submit to him. I ain't going to submit to no man. Uh-uh. I ain't gonna submit. <laughs> he said, I do it too good. <laughs> I want you to see both of these extremes are unbiblical, both of them are sinful. Because one of you has to win and one of you has to lose. And in marriage, if you don't both win, you both lose. In marriage, you either both lose or you both win. But if one of you has to win and one of you has to lose, you may win the battle, but you will lose the war. 
And now these are the extremes. And what's happened because of this, this historic male chauvinism, male domination, there's this overcorrection now, this overreaction that has emasculated men in our civilization, that wants to usurp the role of the man in the home, that wants to erase the role of man in the home, all in the name of equalness. It's now sameness. And you know, the idea here is that we can overcome all the bad men by making all men weak men. If we make all men weak men, there will be no more bad men. But if we do that by making real men weak men, then there's no longer any strong men to deal with the bad men. And that is why we live at a time of male passivity, where consequently there's no leadership in the family. And men, I'm trying to tell you today to step up to the role God has given you, regardless of whether it's in opposition to this crumbling civilization, reject passivity, accept responsibility, lead courageously, and do it with humility. This is what Jesus did for us, and that is the call of God on your life to do for your wife. Your wife does not need to be married to a boss. Being the head of the home, being the head of your wife, does not make you her boss. But she is looking for a leader. Ladies, some of you have believed this lie. The lie you're being taught by society is somehow to slap in your face makes you less of a woman to submit to your husband his leadership. And this is why today there are very few men that are happy and very few wives are either. Because ladies, you've been told, no, 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 no. You need a man you can control. And I'm here to tell you, you don't want a man you can control. You want a man you can respect. And you can't respect a man you can control. And this has always been God's desire that neither of you sit on the throne of your home, that you mutually submitted one to another in the fear of the Lord, that she is submitting to his lead and he is submitting to her need. In that sense, sometimes you can't tell who's leading who. There are times my body leads my head. If you could be a fly on the wall of my home, sometimes you would wonder, is Krista leading Phil or is Phil leading Krista? See, that's the nature of leadership. Leaders always seek collaboration. Leaders always seek other people's opinion. And the two of you ought to be praying together, coming to a mutual conclusion. I cannot remember the last time that I had to make a decision that Krista hadn't been a part of. I can't remember the last time that we had a major decision from which we didn't seek collaboration and consensus and prayerfully reach a conclusion mutually. You see, that is how you lead your family. If you've got to be the autocratic Mr. Head, Mr. Leader. You're not a leader at all. And you wonder why your wife won't follow. And the simple truth is God knows. A body with two heads is not healthy. You're one person. There can be only one head. So I used to go down to Branson like every summer. You guys, if you're raised in this area, you know Branson, Missouri is the Midwest middle class vacation capital of the world. And one of the things we would always do every summer, because it was kind of a cheap, you know, day, to, you know, something to do for the day, uh, for a very small admission fee, you can go to the College School of the Ozarks. And it's the College School of the Ozarks. They have this amazing museum, a remarkable museum. Well, you can go there today, and you could see the real truck of the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Saw it with my own eyes. They got some real guns from Jesse James, pretty awesome. But when you're a 10-year-old kid, nothing tops, nothing tops this right here. 
a two-headed calf? Wow. I mean, mesmerized as a 10-year-old, a two-headed calf, kind of creepy, isn't it? Now, it's still there today for the very, very small entry fee. You can see that for yourself. And if you go, guess what? It has a little placard, tells about this two-headed calf. It wasn't healthy. It died very quickly. You know why? Because an organism with two heads is not healthy. Check this out. A home with two heads is a war zone. You wonder why you're always butting heads. Because somebody's rocking the rolls. You're playing out of position. There's one head and one body, and the two of them are mutually working together, mutually submitted one to another. His lead, her need. Now, ladies, you got three verses. Guess what? The men get the rest of this chapter. You know why? Because God knows we're going to need it. If indeed we're a picture of Christ in the home as the head of the home, what does that look like? Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why do we follow Jesus? Not because we have to, but because we want to. Why do we want to? I'll tell you why we follow him. Not simply because of what he said, but because of what he did. He bled. And you see, the reality is he now can lead because he was first willing to bleed. Gentlemen, listen carefully. You're not leading if you're not bleeding. You see, to lead means sacrifice. It means to take the nails, to love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And generally speaking, there are exceptions, but generally God has made a woman to want to follow a man, not because she's got to, but because she wants to. If she can see it in you, that you would lay down your life for her. But if she don't see you bleeding, then don't be surprised when she doesn't follow your leading. When you make it all about you. Jesus said these words, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life a ransom for many. So how are you giving your life as a ransom for your bride? How are you laying down your wife to be living proof of a loving God to your wife? You see, the reality is marriages only die when two people are alive. When two people choose to die, you give life to your marriage and your marriage will thrive. But so much of the time what happens is two people choose to fight for themselves and as they fight for themselves, they're taking life from each other and life from the marriage, and that is how marriage eventually dies. Listen carefully, gentlemen. I got the wife I always wanted when God got the man he always wanted. And when I began to finally, it took me 14 years to get there to really understand practically Ephesians 5.25, but when God got the man he always wanted, I finally got the wife I always wanted, and what that meant was I had to take the nails Instead of trying to protect myself, instead of trying to hang on to the throne, I want you to say, I gave up the throne, and in complete submission to him, it ended the competition and the tension and the striving and the separation. And so let me ask you, how are you dying for your wife? Because what it really means is will you live for your wife? I know guys who say, well, I would die for my wife. Yeah, well, would you go to the mall with her? <laughs> well, Pastor Phil, I'd take a bullet for my wife. I'd take a bullet for her. Yeah, would you give up a Saturday afternoon of football just to spend time with her? 
See, this is what Jesus did for us. He submitted to our need, though he was royalty. He stepped out of eternity into tears and trials and pain and death to walk among us because that was our need. When you look in scripture, there was a time the disciples were hungry and it was breakfast. Guess what he did? He made breakfast for them on the shores of Galilee just to serve them. Let me ask you, has there ever been a time you said, honey, I got breakfast, breakfast in bed. I'm just saying she doesn't have to have 104 degree fever and be going into convulsions to do something nice for her. Just, just to serve her. You may burn the toast. She'll just be glad you did. I'll, I'll be honest. There were days, I, many years, I did the outside work. She did the inside work. I did not do a dish for years and years and years. Not proud of it. Just unspoken responsibilities. Baby, you got that. I got this. As the years have gone by, I'm not patting myself on the back, but I'm telling you, I do a lot of dishes, and I clean the kitchen. I don't do a lot of laundry but I do mop the floors. Some of you, oh, that's, that's women's work. I'm telling you, John Wayne, if you think a little soap and water is gonna wash away your manliness, you need a hormone shot. <laughs> this is what it means to be a man, a Christ-like head for your wife. Practically speaking, Jesus got down and washed the feet of his disciples. It was a grimy, nasty job, but this was their need. This is what it means to love your wife as Christ loved the church. And I'm trying to say that for the average woman, not all of them, that have believed the lies of the enemy, but most women, when they see you bleed, they will follow your lead. And if you're not willing to bleed, don't expect them to follow your lead because they don't trust you. Leadership is about trust, not just love. They may love you, they don't trust you if they think it's all about you. And this is what God began to do in our marriage at the 14 year mark. That was many years ago, it changed everything. You see, you can get a new marriage without getting a new mate. When God got the man he always wanted, I got the mate I always wanted. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You know what he's teaching in the same way. It's the love of Christ upon us that changes us wipes away the blotches, the blemishes, the wrinkles, the hitches, the hang-ups. A man's love upon his wife has the power to change her. Gentlemen, you get the wife that she saw when she looked into the mirror of your eyes. Give it time. Mirror, mirror on the wall, am I the fairest of them at all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, am I still beautiful to you at all? Mirror, mirror on the wall, am I still special to you at all? And the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ is trying to tell us, gentlemen, over time she becomes exactly who she sees when she looks in the mirror of your eyes. You want her to be more beautiful? Treat her like she's beautiful. You want her to become a truly, truly special treasure then treat her like she is one.
because she will become that someone. In the same way the love of God changes us, your love for your wife has the power to change her. For no one has ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. You see, Paul quotes from Genesis 2, the very same verses we saw a week ago. As Adam sees his bride, this is bone on my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall be joined to his wife and they shall be one flesh. You know what Paul's teaching us? This relationship should be a visible picture of this relationship. And I will promise when it is, God will be most glorified in your marriage. And I will promise when God is glorified, you will be gratified. You will never be more gratified in your marriage than when God is deeply glorified by your marriage. But to have that kind of marriage, don't rock the rolls or you'll have a marriage on the rocks. Jesus, I pray for every person today under the sound of my voice. Blessing God over every single home, every single family. Jesus, that you would bless and prosper every single marriage under the sound of my voice that we reject the world's empty wisdom full of its competition. That we would submit all to your dominion to know the joy of everything you intended when you created marriage. In Jesus' name, amen. Church, give Jesus the glory today. Would you praise him? Thanks for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure and subscribe and share with a friend. We hope today's message inspired and challenged you. Let's go be living proof of a loving God to a watching world. For more information about Abundant Life, visit livingproof.co or follow us on social media at Abundant Life LS.